Well, welcome to the end of the month Q&A. My goal with this channel, if you are new here, you don't know what's going on. My name is Ryan. My goal is to help you. I want to help equip the church to think critically about Christianity, the objections against the faith, the challenges to living out the Christian worldview. I do that by doing a range of things. I have interviews where I interview scholars on different books and different ideas related to Christianity and Christian apologetics, Christian ethics. Last interview was on the formation of the canon with Dr. William Mounts, the biblical scholar, New Testament uh, scholar, as well as Bible translator, as well as at the end of the month. I want to kind of just have a more fun, chill conversation, addressing some of the issues and questions that you have and give you a chance to kind of ask more um, issues that are in related to what you are going through with my goal of helping you think critically about Christianity, defend it well, and faithfully live it out. So that is what I do the last Thursday of every month. And this is that live Q&A. Now, again, I know that we are busy. There's a lot going on. Uh, you don't necessarily have to sit here and watch the whole thing. So once I'm done and I get a little bit of time, maybe it takes me a day or so, I will go through and I will timestamp this video uh, looking at all the different questions and issues that we work through. And so uh, you can kind of skip ahead to the things that are more relevant to you and watch the parts that you care about. So hopefully that will help you as you work through this somewhat quickly. And if you want to stick around and join for the whole time, awesome. Thanks for being here. And Eddie, good to see you here. Uh, so fun to just kind of join you guys and hang out this uh, Thursday afternoon here at the end of the month. Now, things are going to get a little bit crazy for me. This is the end of October. In about one month, my first child, my son is due. And so uh, I'm not sure what live streaming will look like come the end of November when the due due date is approaching, but I hope to still be able to get some content out there and be able to join you guys. But I'm super looking forward to that. And so um some of the questions that came in from podcast listeners to, to YouTube comments to TikTok comments is um, looking at the Christian thought life and how uh, we, we understand thoughts to be sin or not sin. Looking at abortion laws and how we should go about trying to change and and affect what we how we see abortion in our country. Uh, let's see. I also have questions on uh, the Council of Nicaea. This is actually from uh, the video that I had last week, the interview on the canonization of Scripture. Um, I posted a short clip from that interview on TikTok, and that has got, I think, over like 6,000 views already and a lot of comments on that. And so I'm kind of working through different aspects of canonization on TikTok. And so if you're interested in like short little videos and you are on TikTok, you can follow there. Uh, I think it's the same. I haven't updated this, but it's the same information there. Ryan Pauly 3, I think is my name there on TikTok. And we're going to work through why certain books are included, why certain books are not. Uh, but some objections and questions came in there that related back to the interview that I had last week. And so I wanted to talk through some of those with you. And so uh, as always, you can uh, comment in uh, in a few different ways, just kind of going through how you can join the show. Um, uh, you can leave your comments ahead of time on TikTok, on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, you can text them in ahead of time um, the, or on Facebook. I, I already mentioned Facebook. Anyways, uh, ahead of time, if you want, uh, you can text them in. Uh, that's how you know podcast listeners and others get through if you're listening on podcast. Uh, if you have joined here live on YouTube, you can comment there in the live chat. Uh, just put a cue there uh, that you know it's, uh, so I know it's for me and then uh, ask your question. I'll do my best to get to it. Or again, I would, I love to be able to have a conversation. Not many people call in and that's okay. But if you want to call in and have more of a conversation, working through an issue, kind of presenting some objections and questions, uh, you can text that phone number. It is a Google voice phone number. You text it. I will send you a link. Then you can join the show. I just ask that you are respectful and you don't use language. We want a wholesome show here, but one where we can really dig deep into these issues and talk about them. So that is how you can join the show. And so with that, let's just jump right into the first question. Again, I just encourage you guys to send in those questions that you have them. 
Uh, first question that came in from a podcast listener. Thank you so much for listening on podcasts. Those who are out there, I know you sometimes get ignored, but uh, I apologize. But thanks for listening. And no, for the rest of you, if you're on YouTube, you can find uh, the Ryan Pauly podcast is what it's called on any podcast listening app, iTunes or whatever, Spotify, Google. No, uh, Amazon Music is also on. And so you can uh, listen on podcasts. I do all my listening on podcasts as well. Just as easier. Listen in the car, listen on bike rides. It's nice. But podcast listener texts in and says, will you provide a concise, coherent argument for how Christians should view their thought life? How would you sum up what thoughts are sin, what thoughts about sin are okay, and which ones are not? So for this, we got to go to Scripture and understand a little bit of what Scripture has to say about our thought life and, um, and, uh, and then how to address this. Uh, and so let's open that up. And yes, Eddie, uh, hey, thanks. Yeah, you should subscribe. <laughs> That'll help. Um, no, yes, I do have a podcast. So if you are like listening there, that's definitely an option. So first of all, Matthew chapter five, we have to form a, a good foundation here really quickly. Matthew chapter five is the section, right? If we come to the very beginning of the chapter, right? This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking. This is where he goes to the blessed are you who do these things. He talks about the, the believers um, are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can you how can that saltiness be restored? And then comes in to what Christ has done. He came to fulfill the law and then jumps into anger. He says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire. And so here we kind of recognize, again, like there are these strict rules that we see in the Old Testament, um, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. And Jesus like kind of shifts this. It becomes more extreme and says, look, if you are angry, you are liable to judgment. Now, I'm not necessarily saying this was the best thing that I've ever done, but I was like yesterday. Uh, you know, I get tired um, of getting comments from Christians who are commenting, calling me a fool, calling me an idiot, calling me things because of some of the content that I posted. And so I have a video uh, where that, those comments come in frequently. And I Christians say, this person in the video is an idiot. Uh, and I, I kind of responded with this. I'm like, look, you called me a fool without good reason. Like you are liable to the hells of fire. We have to be aware of what we are saying and how we are thinking about others. Now we jump in and Jesus continues on. And here's kind of the main focus here. It says, if you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so I think one, what I wanted to bring out here and why I think this is relevant to helping answer this question of what thoughts, when is it okay to think about sin? What thoughts are sin? When is it not? Is it's very clear we have to recognize our thoughts can be sinful. Sinful actions are not just actions that you do, right? A sin of commission is something that you do that is wrong. So you commit adultery, you commit murder. That is something that you do that is wrong. There's also sins of omission, where this is where you don't do something you should. So you should stand up for those um, who are weak, or you should help, you know, show love to someone who is downcast and out and having a hard day. Like there's things that we should do. And if we don't listen, we don't show that love, then that is also sinful behavior as we kind of just stick to ourselves and ignore those who are hurting and those who are in need. But I think what Matthew chapter five also is very clearly saying, is it's not just the actions, the things that you do that you shouldn't, or the things that you don't do that you should, but also the way that we think 
is sinful. And so this does lead to conversations about, okay, then, then what is it? Like, I mean, I have all these bad, am I just constantly sinning? How does this work? Now for this, I think that James has something to say to help us kind of work through this and maybe get somewhat of a concise, coherent argument. And I hope that what I give you is concise and coherent. James um, chapter one, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, there's you know a lot that can be said here. But one thing that's important to recognize is in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. But notice that it's not till verse 15 that it says when that desire then has conceived, then it gives birth to sin. I think that what James is suggesting here is that it is not sinful until that desire then is acted upon, right? And so many people would say, you know, just to, just to simply have a desire is not sin, right? We are fallen human beings. All of us have desires and attractions that we ought not act on. Those desires are going to be different. That's why the video that I got called an idiot for what I said is I claim that, look, someone can have same-sex attraction, recognize that is sinful, follow Christ, repent, trust in him as Lord and Savior, that person will be forgiven and go to heaven. There's nothing that says in scripture, if you have same-sex attraction, if you have this sexual orientation, then you are going to hell. And if you are straight, you're going to heaven. That's not in scripture. Scripture is saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we all have a broken, sinful, fallen human nature that causes us to have desires that are wrong. The question then is, what do we do with those desires? And so I think that what James here is saying is that we have this, this luring, this enticing, these, these desires that are trying to call us to get us to do wrong. And when we do not fall into the trap of that desire, when we stand firm, then we are not sinning. But when we begin to entertain, engage with, or fall into that lure, that enticement, it fall into the trap of that desire, that is when it is conceived and gives birth to sin right? Is a, that full grown desire, so to speak, because it talks about that giving birth analogy. This is the sin that grows into maturity, bears into that, and then leads into a life of death. And so how to sum up the Christian thoughts, what thoughts about sin are okay? Well, thoughts about sin, I would say are not ever okay, right? And so we have sinful thoughts. We have a sinful desire that may pop into our head, I think that's where it needs to stop. The moment we entertain that sinful thought, the moment we engage with that sinful thought, the moment we start to think more about that thought, we start thinking about our thoughts. That is when I think that is when it leads to sin. That is not okay. 
simply having a desire or a thought that pops into our head. That is part of our sinful nature. I think James says, yes, that's the lure, that's the enticement, but it only is sin or gives birth to sin when we engage with it or when it kind of conceives in that language that he uses. And so I hope that that is a concise, coherent argument for how you should view your thought life. We should not be expected or we should not be surprised, is what I mean, uh, by having these negative sinful thoughts. I think they should be expected. We should expect to have desires that we ought not act on. And we have to recognize in a culture that talks about, you know, our desires are inherent to us and therefore they're good. That is recognizing or believing or coming from this worldview approach that we are inherently good human beings. And therefore any desire that you have that is coming from within must also then be good. Right? This is a fundamentally different starting point from a secular worldview compared to a Christian worldview perspective. We are not fundamentally good human beings. We see in the very beginning of scripture, Genesis chapter three, you have the fall and you have humankind entering into sin and we have original sin. And so we are broken upon birth. People don't like this. How horrible to say that people are broken before they've done it. Well, there's a truth to this. We are inherently sinful. We have a disposition towards sin. That is bad news. It's not wonderful to think about those things. But again, Christ has not left us in that brokenness. God has not left us there. He sent Christ to redeem us, to rescue us from that sinful nature, to restore us and heal us and reconcile us back into that relationship with him. And so there is this fundamental brokenness that causes all of us to have attractions and desires that we ought not act on. Your desires are not going to be the same as someone else. You may struggle with a sin that someone else does not struggle with. And that is when we have to come alongside one another and say, look, you know, I may not struggle with this, but I'm not going to condemn you. Let's work together to figure out how you can keep from entering into the sinful thought activity where you begin to think on those thoughts, you entertain those thoughts, you engage with those thoughts rather than setting those thoughts aside and focusing on Christ. All right, I think that we are called really clearly, you know, in Philippians chapter four, that we are to think about, if I can pull it up here. One of the verses I learned at the very beginning, right? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about such things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so I hope that that is at least somewhat concise. I've provided some argument or reason for it, looking at what scripture has to say. I think it is clear that we have to recognize sin is not just when we act on something. Our thoughts can be sinful, but there are fundamental desires because of our brokenness uh, that we need to take captive for Christ rather than give into and say, well, just because it is a thought that I have, uh, therefore it's okay. That is not the way that it works. Thank you for sending that in podcast listener. All right. Next question coming up. This is from Instagram, actually. Uh, do you think that abortion laws might cause more harm than good? Shouldn't we just promote abstinence and contraceptives? Now, I think that there's some really, uh, man, there's a really important, I think, point to bring out in this. And here's my main idea that, that I want to kind of work through with you guys. And that's this. It should not be an either or. It should not be an either or how we go about doing things. It's not either just create laws or just try to change hearts. I think that there's a both component, 
right? Just change the topic, get rid of abortion for a second and bring it to anything else, any other moral issue. Should we try to change the way that people, like what I just talked about, right? Think about murder. Jesus said, if you commit murder, that's wrong. But I say, if you hate your brother. So do we want to try to change the way that people think about each other to where we are no longer hating, despising, wishing death upon someone, but just go, but I'm not going to murder them, but I wish you dead. Or do we try to get people to love one another and change the way that we fundamentally see and view each other? Well, that's a goal that we have. But then the question becomes, well, what do we do then when someone actually goes out and commits murder? Is there going to be a law that we can then use to judge that person and to hold them accountable for the actions that we have? And so we would never say, well, laws are unnecessary. Just simply promote good behavior, promote love and promote acceptance, promote forgiveness. But we never say as well, just simply make laws that make murder illegal and don't try to tell people to love their neighbor as themselves. There is a both and component to this. And so I recognize like laws, like the one that Texas passed, right? The, the heartbeat law. I think that this is good because it does restrict abortions and every abortion that does not happen is saving a human life. Now, I don't know the numbers perfectly on this. I, I've heard it said, you know, uh, that, you know, there are about 900 to a million, 900,000 to a million abortions every year in the United States. Now, some people have run numbers, try to make predictions. And I think they said something and I could be off on this, but I think the same point is true. So don't quote me on these numbers. Uh, but if abortion became illegal in the United States, you would have around 40,000 or so back alley illegal abortions, right? So it's still going to happen, but it's happening illegally. Now you're, you're dramatic, you're dramatically reducing the number. So let's say it's not 40,000, let's say it's 80 or let's say it's hundred, right? It doesn't really matter, but you are dramatically going to reduce the number of abortions if you make it illegal. But now the ones that do get performed are going to be more dangerous for the women. But think about this. Let's say there's still a hundred thousand now illegal abortions that happen every year. And let's say absolute worst case scenario, Worst case scenario, and please hear me out on this and what point I'm trying to make. Worst case scenario, let's say the mother and the child in all 100,000 cases passes away. In that example, you have 200,000 deaths. Compared to abortion being legal, you have a million deaths through abortion every year. In one sense, you're still saving 800,000 lives. There's a net win in one sense. You're saving lives, which is good. Now, again, the same kind of argument can be made when it comes to drugs. By making drugs illegal, it has made it so now back alley illegal drug transactions are more dangerous. You can't just legally go acquire it from a store. And so now you have to do a legal drug, uh, you know, buying and selling and it becomes more dangerous. And so people are dying. But we would never say, well, we want to make like we realize that there's a lot of harm in illegal drug trafficking and illegal drug sales. And so let's make it legal to save the people's lives who are going to do it illegally. Because we recognize that legalizing drugs, cocaine, methamphetamines, and this kind of stuff is going to actually cause more harm to society. And we know that by making it illegal, it's going to raise the risk of the illegal aspect of that activity. But it's still in one sense... And that win is that we're saving society from these illegal drugs, even though that we know that people are going to use them, abuse them, and that illegal things are going to take place. And so I think that absolutely anytime you create a law and people are going to start doing things the illegal way, it can lead to 
a more harm in one sense for certain individuals, more dangerous for certain individuals. But when you look at the overall greater good, it is better. It is better. Now, I'm not proposing or advocating this utilitarian ethic that you simply just do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. But if the fundamental Christian ethic is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets, according to Jesus, can be summed up in those two commandments. What does it look like to love your neighbor? It's to try to protect them from an injustice, from wrong. And so I do believe that laws that try to protect innocent human beings are fundamentally good laws. Now, can we sometimes take laws and then misuse, mishandle, mistreat those laws and then take advantage of people because of it? Right. So I think a, a, a claim that was made in this post was also like, well, if we create these laws then people might start mistreating women, maybe. But that just shows the broken and corruption of the human heart. To where then we start demonizing women who maybe still try to do it rather than saying, look, how do we see the brokenness of our culture? How do we see maybe some women receive this as this is the only option they have and try to come alongside and support and love, not just get rid of laws and just allow them to do it because of what could possibly happen. It's similar to maybe an argument that you hear for abortion. Well, if this kid is born into the world, they may grow up and become a bank robber. I've heard someone say that to me before. I've had someone say that to me before. So we're going to kill someone because you might choose to be a bad person in the future? No, shouldn't we give someone that chance and still create laws based on what is fundamentally good? Now, again, as I said, um, I'm not in the legislative side of the government. I'm not applying for government office. I'm not trying to become uh, a senator or representative or anything. Um, I am more focused on that second question. I'm trying to sit here to persuade people who might be watching my videos, who might be interested in wondering what the heck I have to say and try to persuade people to think differently about these things. And so, yeah, I want to try to persuade people on what is a right decision, on what is best, on what is good. Working through my with my ethics class right now and what it looks like to actually desire what is true good and beautiful. We're watching movie clips and listening to music and, and not just saying, here's a line, right? This is how I approach the topic of, of arts and entertainment. It's not just saying, here's a line, here's the bad side, here's the good side, right? Bad side is violence and blood and, and cursing and whatnot. And then the good side is anything that talks about Jesus and the Bible and don't do anything that's bad. That's not necessarily what, the way that I approach it. Instead, it's how do you get people to shift and change the way that they fundamentally view and engage entertainment. And I relate it to food. How? <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> I relate to food. How? Well, here's the whole point. When it comes to food, the people who truly love and appreciate food, you don't have to tell them to stop eating bad food. You don't have to stop, tell them to stop eating trash and garbage. Why? Because they don't want it. They want good food. They've realized the benefits of good food and they desire good food. So you don't have to tell them to stop eating the dog poop on the side of the road. You don't have to tell them to go, don't go through the trash. We, we just recognize that's gross. That's disgusting. I don't want that food. I want something better. And with real foodies, they don't even go fast food or maybe it's like, unless it's, they have to, they want better food because they just desire that which is good and better. 
I think the same can be true when it comes to moral actions, when it comes to our entertainment choices. Rather than just creating this list and say, nope, bad food, stay away. Bad music, stay away. Bad movies, stay away. Now there is a line to draw. How do we change the fundamental desires of students to where they go, look, I don't want to listen to that song because that's just a gross, bad, disgusting song. I want good music. What is good music? Music that talks about things that are true, things that are actually good, things that are beautiful. And it's not just Christian music that does this. Recognizing the worldview behind entertainment, all that kind of stuff. And so I absolutely would agree that we should promote things like abstinence, whatever, birth control. I got issues on contraceptives. I, I don't think that some of them are okay, but um, that's maybe another story. If you want to hear more about that, you can comment in the live uh, chat there. But the issue here is, yeah, we, I do want to try to show students, and I will get to this chapter soon, what a biblical view of sexuality looks like and why a biblical view of sexuality is actually better, right? If we all actually live the biblical Christian sexual ethic, there would be no more unwanted pregnancies. There would be no kids out of wedlock. There'd be no more, you know, dads abandoning their families once kids are born and leaving single mothers alone. Be no more, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. We would cure so many of the issues. There'd be no more men abusing women for their bodies, just using them for what they can get, like tools rather than people to be loved. The Christian sexual ethic is actually beautiful and good. So how do we actually shape people's desires to where they desire that which is good and choose that which is right? At the same time, we need laws in place to be able to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. That is the role of government. Right, so I think maybe too, you can even see kind of the difference here in this question of the role of government versus the role of the church and the people. Right, the role of government is to protect the innocent, punish the guilty. That's one of the government's main jobs, according to scripture. Protect the innocent, punish the guilty. How do we then, as people, as friends, as influencers, as pastors, as teachers, come along and try to persuade people and encourage them to do what is right? That would be my approach. I think that they're both good. They're both necessary. This is not an either or. I think it is a both and. Hopefully that helps. All right, again, if you have questions, if you want to call in, there is the number 714-989-6927. You can text that. I will send you a link. You can join me. We can have a conversation. Thanks for being here. We're going to continue working through questions uh, that came in ahead of time. Okay, this was actually, this is not a question. This is a comment that came in on TikTok. And I want to just describe what I would say to this. So I created a video arguing something. Oh, no, it was a video about the biblical canon and the word of God. And so someone comments and just says, show actual, actual evidence in the now of said God. If you can't, stop promoting it as real in the now. Now, my response was, I actually have quite a few videos on YouTube that discuss the evidence for the existence of God. Why don't you watch those and let me know what questions you have about it? To which then, and I got this exact same response back. Show evidence in the now. Now, one thing that's important is to kind of recognize what's happening here. Um, it doesn't appear, no, I could be wrong, but it doesn't appear that this person actually wants to know, right? There is a much more honest humility from the person that says, hey, I'm really struggling with this. What evidence do you have for God? 
hey, you've been talking about God a lot. Why do you believe that God exists? Right? There's a much more like curiosity and humility to say, hey, what evidence do you have versus this demand, show evidence now or else stop. Look, I'm not just at the beck and call of people, right? I'm not just going to, okay, well, you said I have to show evidence. Okay, okay, let me just produce all this evidence. Um, I think there's some wisdom of how us as Christians, how we go about living out the Christian faith and how we go about defending Christianity. I don't think that everyone who demands evidence deserves evidence. Now, I think we often are quick to throw out the verse, like, you know, do not throw your pearls before swines. Um, and, and it's hard to know maybe what is a swine, who, who's acting this way, when is it valuable, when is it good, how should we go about doing this? But I think it's pretty clear, like, look, how do we have conversations with people that are ha want to have conversations? Look, I, we only have so much time in the day. How do we have productive and good conversations that really matter? And so um, what I would normally probably say in response to this is, okay, you've probably heard the evidence before. I'm assuming that I'm not the first Christian who they have made this demand to. I'm not the first person they probably are are wondering, right? Because then it would be a more like, hey, what's the evidence for God? I'm kind of curious. What what I've never had this conversation before. This person's probably heard the evidence for God. And so that's why I would want to respond and say, or I did respond and say, what do you think about the evidence that's been presented? Or what evidence have you heard about? Okay, let's, let me try to ask a question back and see if this person is willing to engage in a conversation. What evidence for God has been given to you before? Have you heard about? Nope, show me evidence. Okay, you're not willing to have a conversation. We're not going to have a conversation. Now, if they go, huh, here's the evidence I've heard about before. Okay, now let's have a conversation. So what do you think about that evidence? What do you think it shows? Right, this is exactly what I just did with my doctrine class today. So again, if you're new here and you're just tuning in, thanks for being here. Uh, I see a few more people just joined. So thanks for being here. If you've got questions, you can put those in the live chat. But I'm a high school teacher. And I've already mentioned I teach a philosophy of ethics class. And I've been discussing entertainment uh, culture with my senior ethics students. I also teach a sophomore, junior, historical Christian doctrine and apologetics. And so we just finished two weeks on the doctrine of God, looking at the attributes of God, what scripture has to say about God. And now we are just finishing our next two weeks on the evidence for God's existence. And so the homework assignment that I gave to my students, we spent three days covering the arguments for God's existence. We talked about the contingency argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, the design argument, and the moral argument. I guess I spent four days. It was a day on each one. Uh, four, day, four days covering the, those four arguments for the, existence, for the existence of God. And then I gave them a homework assignment. And I said, I want you to go research and find at least one argument against the existence of God. And then you have to submit that argument. But then you also have to explain why that is a claimed argument against God. Right? So you have to show that you understood what this person is claiming. And so my students came today. I'm going to do it with my next class tomorrow. Uh, but my first class, I got two doctrine classes. The first class, that was today's activity. And some of them found some really good arguments that they showed that people had looked in scripture and tried to pull out Bible verses. And, and this is what they're finding by atheists or skeptics online. And so then we wrote them all up on the board. We had our arguments for God's existence. We had our arguments against God's existence. And then we did an evaluation, a comparison. What do we think about this? And some of the arguments were so bad that, you know, <laughs> some of my students just responded to, well, hold on, that makes no sense. Why? Well, here's why. And I'm like, yeah, good. 
It doesn't make sense. I'm glad you can see that. Some of them, the students are like, I've never heard this objection before. Can you please explain what the objection is? And so then we, I explain what that objection is and we begin to work through it. This is a good conversation to have with people who are willing to have that conversation and to think critically about the existence of God. And so uh, I want to say, look, there's a lot of arguments out there. You probably have been presenting with, presented with evidence before. Some people with good evidence, other people not. So my students had never heard some of the evidence that we went over for God's existence. And so I'm not going to just respond immediately to this and say, okay, well, here's the four arguments for God's existence. Right? I think it's important to say, hey, if I could give you evidence for God's existence, that he is real, evidence in the now of God's existence, would you admit that God exists? I think that's a really good question to ask. That's another video that, that people object to on my YouTube channel uh, on the, the reasons why people don't believe and that there's an intellectual reason that people dismiss God for intellectual reasons. There is a volitional reason. They just don't want God. They want to do something else. And then there are emotional reasons that people have had issues with the church or with Christians and there's emotional reasons that they don't want God. And, and I make the claim based on just personal experience that I think the intellectual reasons are probably the lowest, right? That we have... It says in scripture, people suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans chapter one. It's not because they necessarily think it's false. Some people maybe are just not aware of the truth. I don't think it's the majority though. And I get testimony after testimony after testimony of people commenting in and telling me, hey, I thought I had intellectual reasons for my rejection. And once I kind of reflected back on it, I realized those weren't my actual reasons. It was something else. Or I hear stories of people talking with people where they presenting intellectual reason, intellectual reason, intellectual reason. They go, hold on a second. What is really going on here? And then the person admits, okay, you're right. I have a girlfriend. I want to sleep with her. That was one person in their comment. This is why. We want to see, as Frank Turk often asks, if I could show that Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If the answer is yes, okay, let's have a conversation. If I could show actual evidence of this God here and now, would you admit that he exists? Yes. Okay, cool. What evidence has been presented to you? I don't want to repeat myself. Have you heard the Kalam argument? No. Okay. You've never heard that. Okay. Let's have a conversation, right? That This is how I would want to have this sort of conversation uh, with someone, especially face-to-face. -face. That's when it's easiest. Um, someone just simply demanding that I provide evidence because they demand it on TikTok is not going to be the way that I go about having that sort of conversation. All right, hopefully maybe that helps. Is not necessarily a question, but kind of how I would work through an issue on God's existence. All right, an objection to my last interview that came up um, on TikTok in the video that I had with Dr. William Mounts, the interview from last week. If you didn't see that, check it out. I thought that was a great interview. I had a lot of fun, really fun talking with him. Great content, great information. Uh, the question came up and said, okay, but didn't the council influence the New Testament canon? Now there's a lot of misunderstanding. We talked about it in the interview last week is that there's a lot of misunderstanding where people believe it's, it was at the council of Nicaea where they created the New Testament canon, where they chose the books. This is not true. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with New Testament canon. The Council of Nicaea addressed the divinity of Jesus. Now, again, there is a very common misunderstanding of what the councils were doing. There is a fundamental belief in Christianity taught in the New Testament that Jesus 
is God. And I've talked about the Trinity on a lot of shows, so I'm not going to go in necessarily to the arguments for the Trinity right here. Now, as Christians believe that Jesus is God, this is a common belief that they have, objections start coming, skeptics start coming and start challenging. Arianism starts showing up. No, Jesus is just a created being. He's not eternally God. And it takes the church to sit down and say, okay, hold on. Let's work through, let's create language to describe what we know is true. And I think this is what's really important that is often misunderstood, as I said in one video, is that Christianity is a revealed religion, not a created religion. Christianity is discovered, not invented. Now, what does that look like? It's the same as if we discover gravity. Right. Isaac Newton, right? Off the top of my head. I think that's right. Isaac Newton discovered gravity. He created language that described gravity. He didn't invent it. He didn't create it. Gravity existed a long time before Isaac Newton, but he was the one that discovered it and then created language to describe it. So when we see these councils creating language to describe the Trinity, they're simply doing the same thing like Newton did with gravity. He didn't invent gravity. Gravity did not begin to exist with the discovery of Isaac Newton. Instead, it was the council that then created language to describe something they already knew to be true, what God had revealed to them in scripture. So yeah, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the concepts are there that there's one God, that God exists in three separate persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those three persons are distinct from each other. They're not the same, but all three are God. That's what scripture teaches. It was at the council that then it is formulated, set in stone, like, look, this is clear. This is a foundation of the church. You disagree with it. You're outside of Christian orthodoxy. That's what happened at the Council of Nicaea. A lot of people disagree though. Uh, no, the Council of Nicaea created the canon. That's just not true. Now, one person then jumped in and here's where the question comes in. Sorry, that was a lot of context, I guess. Um, did the Council of Nicaea though influence the New Testament canon, right? So they're claiming, okay, yeah, canon was not discussed at Nicaea, but Nicaea influenced the canon. Now, what I said in response was in order to prove this to be true, and by the way, little plug for TikTok, if you're on there, um, because of this series, I think I mentioned, uh, a lot of questions came in. A lot of people want me to go into other things. So I'm going to be doing a short little video series on TikTok related to uh, the biblical canon, which books are included, which ones aren't. Uh, those videos are a minute or so long. And so they're really short, clip, quick little videos. So if you're on there, you can follow me, uh, Ryan Polly 3 There's the information there on the screen. Uh, but anyways, um, I think in order to show that the Council of Nicaea influenced New Testament canon. You have to show what was believed about the canon before, what how, how it was different after, and then you have to show an actual causal connection to from Nicaea to that change. Right, so just in the same way um, that you would say, look, um, uh, 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 this person changed my life. You have to say, here's how I was before, here's who I am now, and it was because of them, not some other factor that caused me to be different, right? That's what would have to be shown. Now, this person said, there no, was no such thing as a canon before Nicaea. Nicaea created the Trinity, created what you know uh, Christians believe, and therefore then that affected what books got chosen because it had to agree with what Nicaea did. The problem with this is it disregards what Dr. Uh, Bill Mount talked about last week, of the fact that there are two definitions of the canon that existed pre-Nicaea. There is the ontological canon, as he described, that is the fact that these books are the word of God. And that existed from the moment the book was written. And so we have an ontological, ontological canon in the first century. Just like 
gravity is real. Even when we hadn't discovered it yet, it's real. It's there. We just haven't discovered it yet. So these books were, were the word of God. They are the word of God. Maybe we just didn't know it at that time. So that's the ontological canon. Then you have the agreed upon early church canon, what the early church fathers saw and recognized as having that authority of God. And you have all 27 books of the New Testament quoted by early church fathers as authoritative by year 200, 125 years before the Council of Nicaea. And so all 27 books are considered by early church fathers to be scripture before Nicaea. And so if you're going to claim that Nicaea affected the books of the Bible, you have to show how what the church fathers believed ahead of time, since they had a canon agreed upon body of literature that they saw as authoritative word of God, and how that list of books was different after Nicaea. The issue is that the books that were included before Nicaea by year 200, the 27 books are the same 27 books that we have in the councils that were decided after Nicaea that finally formalized the canon. And the third definition, as Bill Mounts talked about, is when the conversation stopped at the end of the fourth century, the late 300s, right? And so um, in order to show that this influence happened, I think you have to show how that's different and it's not different. And then you have to show an actual causal connection, right? Instead of uh, what is a, uh, um, a logical fallacy is a false cause, right? So if you were to say, just because this thing happened after this event, this event made it happen, right? So the rooster crows and the sun rises. Therefore, the rooster crow caused the sun to rise. Well, of course not. Just because one event preceded came before another does not mean that it caused that other one. So you have to show an actual true causal connection. Um, so the, the question came in, um, John Wallace, the Council of Nicaea basically made the table of contents, correct? Um, so if I'm understanding this right, I would say, uh, no, the Council of Nicaea did not make the table of contents. The Council of Nicaea did not address canon. They did not address scripture. The Council of Nicaea addressed um, the divinity of Jesus. Uh, that was the topic of the Council of Nicaea to recognize what scripture teaches about who Jesus is and to be in agreement on that as a church. And so you do have later councils that come along that do the same thing as I just described when it came to the Council of Nicaea and the divinity of Jesus. The councils were recognizing what had authority. They're not creating authority. The books in the Bible are not authoritative because they're included in the canon. It's the opposite. They're included in the canon because they have authority. And so the councils were looking at signs that show true authority. We talked about that in the interview last week. Uh, epistolicity, was it written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle? Orthodoxy, does it teach things that are true of God that we know from other previous revelation of God? And then Catholicity, did it have an, an acceptance in the early church seen as authoritative? And so the councils are using these um, criteria to then apply to the book to help them discover which books are authoritative, not to just put authority on something that had been written. And so again, this early church council was agreed upon by year 200. Everyone is quoted as having authority uh, by that year. And so I don't think that the Council of Nicaea actually did influence the New Testament canon for these reasons. Uh, last question here, actually, and we're, we're getting close to the end. Last question here, and if there's others, please comment those in. Who decided? Oh, 
I guess I already just answered this one. <laughs> Who decided that the books had authority? And again, these are councils. They're not deciding it. They are not creating it. They are not uh, making this up. They are discovering it. It's like, who decided that gravity is real? Well, no one just decided that gravity is real. We discovered gravity. Gravity is a true built-in aspect of reality that then we discover by means of observation applying tests. So in the same way, when it comes to the books of the Bible, they ontologically, they are by very nature, the word of God. And then we are applying tests to those books in order to, to discover which ones had authority. And they is those three criteria that I mentioned there. Um, so hopefully that kind of helps address some of the objections that came up in regard to my interview last week. Now, uh, I'll just kind of end with a few little housekeeping things. If you're kind of curious, you follow the ministry, you kind of want to know what's going on, I'll address that. And then if any questions come in while I'm talking about this, uh, I will address those at the end. So um, I just want to maybe offer a thought on something uh, that I was having a conversation with someone a while back, actually on a last Maven trip. And it was kind of the role of apologetics in the church. Uh, what is the role of apologetics in the church? How should apologists be connected with churches? And someone said, hey, I think that apologists should be considered like missionaries of the church, right? We send missionaries to go preach the gospel, to go out, to do other things. And, but the missionary has that home church. They're connected with the church. The church is supporting them. They have the body of Christ to hold them accountable. This is how churches should see apologists. Now apologists should be connected to the church. The problem is many churches don't kind of function this in this way. And often apologists go off and join apologetics ministries, create their own ministry or join a different ministry. And we have all these parachurch organizations that are not necessarily connected to a church. And I was happy because I was listening to this. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is kind of exactly what my situation is. And so if you guys kind of want to know more about my situation and what's going on and kind of how I think this should work, um, my church and I kind of have that relationship. I am considered a missionary, a sent missionary of my church. I'm going out and preaching the gospel and trying to persuade hearts and show evidence for the existence of God and, and address the needs and concerns uh, that people have with engaging the culture faithfully. And what I love about it is that then gives me the opportunity where I'm connected, I'm plugged into my my body uh, into the body. Uh, I'm allowed to preach on occasion on Sundays, and I let you guys know sometimes when that happens. Uh, I can teach some adult classes and, and high school classes when we have those, and I'm able to jump in and kind of help contribute to the life of the local church, as well as my church then uh, sees me as a missionary. I have a missionary support fund through my church, so I can do this work. I, there's no pay that I get from this. Um, I do this because I love doing it and I enjoy doing it. And so, uh, you know, if you look in the description below, I always put it just in case someone is interested, you know, like when I was a missionary for four years, I was not necessarily out there fundraising. I was not sending out support letters and calling people and asking them for money. But I said, look, if this is a ministry that you care about, if this is a ministry that you love, uh, then you can support and donate to the ministry and kind of have a part in what God is doing in blessing the people when I was a missionary of the Dominican Republic. And so uh, that's similar to, to this. I do this because I love it. I, I love sharing. I love trying to answer your questions. I love studying. Some things are coming up. I think I mentioned this and kind of some housekeeping stuff is, is I got accepted to a doctoral program. So I'm going back to school in about a year from now, and I'm going to be 
Um, yes, I will cover that question. Thanks for commenting that. Um, I'm going to be going back to school. Uh, so I have my master's degree in apologetics. I'm going to go back and I'm going to get a doctor of ministry in engaging mind and culture. And again, the focus of this ministry is to help equip the church to engage their minds on the intellectual side of the faith, theology, apologetics, ethics, and worldview, and then equip the church to go out and engage the culture for Christ and to address the ethical issues from a biblical perspective. And so that is the doctoral program that I'm going to be pursuing and starting in about a year. And so there's some fundraising for that. There's money that I got to save in order to pay for school, child coming, all that kind of fun stuff. But just so you know, like this is, again, I think the way in which, excuse me, I think apologists and the church can work together in a really wonderful and cool way. I wish more churches kind of had apologists on staff or as, as missionaries, as sent missionaries recognize this is an important function to go out and engage the culture in that way. And so if you kind of enjoy what you, uh, what I have to offer, if you enjoy the interviews, a lot of work that goes into these and getting the books and reading them and interviewing these people, you can always um, check out the links below. If you don't want to give through my church, which is a tax deductible contribution, you can give through Patreon there, just different ways that you can come alongside partner in the ministry that is happening here. So um, also, last thing is, um, another aspect of what I do is speaking events. And, you know, that's been slow ever since COVID and events kind of picking up a little bit here and there. But if you want to put me on the calendar, I've already started to book some events for next summer. And so if you want me to come out to your church, your your school, um, I've had the opportunity to speak about five times or so already at my school. We've kind of redone how we do chapels at my high school. And so I've already spoken four or five times doing different trainings for different groups because we have different groups doing different things. And it's kind of cool if you're a high school teacher and you're at a Christian school and you want to kind of figure out how to redo chapel, maybe you can comment and, and I'll talk about more of that on a later date, but um, it's a lot of fun. I just love being here and I love joining you guys and, and trying to work through the questions that you have. And so, um, yeah, if you want to kind of partner in that ministry, those are the ways that you can do it, especially as we come up to the end of the year. If you want that tax deductible credit, I know some people do, uh, if that's important to you, uh, you can definitely contribute that as well. So, uh, Kelly Quayo, thank you so much for being here. Your question, can you speak to the difference, if any, between teaching and preaching and how to know the right time for whichever one? Yes. Oh my goodness. I think this is a hard distinction, but, um, I think it's important. I think there is a, definitely a difference between teaching and preaching. Um, I am more of a teacher. And so I preach more of a teaching style. Um, I think that that teaching is here's a content, you just need to learn the content. Um, and, and so that way you can be teaching math, you can be teaching science, you can be teaching the Bible, teaching theology, there's a lot of teaching that goes involved in that. And I think that good teaching is more training, you're preparing them for something, right? And so there's, there's tests that are coming up, you're preparing them, you're trying to get them ready. Uh, for my students, ready to go out, to engage the world, to know what Christianity is, defend it faithfully, to faithfully live it out. That's what I teach my high schoolers, and that's what I'm here to try to help you do. And so there's a lot of teaching there. I consider myself more of a teacher in that sense. Um, I would define and maybe describe, and it's been a long time since I've read like a preaching book that maybe gives a maybe a better definition uh, of preaching, but preaching is more a, an exposition of the word of God. It's a teaching of the word of God, but then in a very specific uh, applying it, the truths of scripture to the lives of, of people and, and what they're going through. And so I think that there is a, a skill in preaching 
of connecting that truth in scripture to people's real lives and what they're going through, what they're dealing with. There's, there's a need to not only, uh, you know, uh, exegete scripture, go into scripture to figure out what scripture is saying, but also an understanding and a listening to the people that you are ministering to. I love it when, when pastors at churches truly know their congregation and truly know the specific issues and, and, and joys and struggles of their church members to where they can take that scripture and apply it directly to the things that are going on in that body. Rather than kind of making these generic statements, which I hear sometimes at ch some churches, and it's like, who is the pastor talking to? Like, I don't know anyone here that's dealing with that sort of thing. Um, maybe someone is. And I just don't know them. But um, I, I think that would be a difference in how I would describe it. And so what is the right time? Man, I think that there is a, um, man, this is maybe difficult, but obviously I think at church on a Sunday, there's a need for the preaching of the word of God to exposit scripture, to pull out the truths of scripture, to relate it to the lives of people, to, to transform them, to change them, to live and act differently. Um, I also think maybe some more one-on-one -on -one conversations. Right, is a little bit more of a preaching style where you're opening up God's word. You're trying to help people see what scripture has to say. You're working through that with them. You are uh, understanding what's going on in their life and trying to apply that to them as well. Um, teaching, I guess a little bit different. It's like, here's just, you know, some information that I have and it's teaching isn't just simply conveying information, right? Uh, there's a difference between, uh, my students just did this on a homework assignment the other day. What was uh, the exact word. I can't remember the exact word, of course, uh, but informing versus teaching, right? Informing is just, here's some facts versus teaching is giving the reason behind that, explaining it, helping them understand it. And so, um, you know, I'm, I, I teach in my high school class. I don't preach to my students. Um, I preach at church. I don't necessarily teach. I think there's, you know, some slight differences, uh, that I would, I would put there. So, um, hopefully that helps. Uh, hopefully that gives you some thoughts there in kind of understanding the difference between those and, and how to apply it. And I think sometimes they overlap, right? And the one-on-one -on -one conversations can look maybe slightly differently at different times. Um, awesome. So with that, I don't see too much else. And so uh, just encouragement to you as you go off in your week, if you want to connect, uh, please, again, as I just, you know, what are the best ways to, to get this information to spread, to get people to see what is going on is if you subscribe. Uh, I don't often ask for this, but I got a couple extra minutes. So, hey, why not kind of put in a pitch? Uh, if you subscribe to the channel, if you've enjoyed this, subscribe, catch interviews that are coming up. There's always stuff coming up and I want to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you. All my contact information, if you're watching on YouTube, is down in the description below. Uh, you can go to my website. Let me put that up there. There's my website, ryanpauly.org or coffeehousequestions.com, where you can go, you can connect. Again, wanting to hear from you. What are the issues that you have? What are the objections that you're hearing? What are the topics that you are most interested in, because there's a lot of books and a lot of authors and a lot of scholars out there that cover a lot of different issues. And I want to try to find the issues that relate to you, the issues that are important and relevant to you that will help better equip you to be more faithful ambassadors of Christ. That is my goal. And the more I hear from you, the more I can do that. So I just want to encourage you, if you are listening, watching, wherever it is that you're catching this information, you can always email me at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. You can can follow on social media, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Ryan Polly 3. You can check out the website. You can uh, go to Facebook, search my name in Facebook. You can do whatever it is. Text that number 714-989-6927. I just love to hear from you where you're listening from. What are the issues that are dealing with that you're dealing with so that I can better plan episodes in the future that are relevant and important to you. 
So with that, I hope that this has blessed you. I hope that this has encouraged you. And I hope this helps you be better prepared to know what Christianity is, defend it well, and faithfully live it out in our culture. With that is our end of the end of the month. Q&A. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the questions, John, Kelby, Eddie. Thank you so much for joining. Have a wonderful, blessed rest of your day. Continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because everybody, guess what? They're worth thinking about. See ya. Hesitate to follow your love with